politically correct or politically incorrect. Two opposites. Politically incorrect is the opposite of politically correct. And they're relatively recent terms. The phrase politically correct has come to describe proper attitudes, correct thinking, taking care not to offend any particular individual, group, or belief system based on their ethnicity, their beliefs, their religion, their politics, values, or gender. How do we speak of and act towards or treat people who are different than we are? Politically correct includes how these differences appear in, in person, in print media, on television, satirical sitcoms, reality shows, in the movies, or on websites on the internet. Politically correct means we treat all ideas, groups, beliefs with equal respect. We don't poke fun or make jokes or even express disagreement without validating the other's opinion. Of course, the irony in all of this is that to be totally politically correct, one must nearly profess a neutral value or opinion about everything. Now, its, it's counterpart, politically incorrect, offends everybody equally. Nothing is sacred. Everything and everyone is a target. Politically incorrect is to offend the sensibilities of the norm, to, to contradict the commonly held values or beliefs, to go outside the box, to challenge the establishment. It's actually a way to agitate for change. Well, today we're going to look at politically incorrect. And as we continue our series, we're going to look at an event in the life of Jesus. And in that day and ours, Jesus was politically incorrect. What he did and said totally offended, especially the religious culture of that day. But change was needed. So let's see what we can learn. If you want to turn and follow, we're going to watch a video clip from The Chosen. It's Luke 5, Luke 5, 27 to 39. It's on page 836 in the Bible, in the rack in front of you. But let's watch this incident in the life of Jesus first. Next. Okay, fine. So you did not go to the races. You stay home? I went to see my mother. Ugh, that would put me out, too. She asked when you're going to give her grandchildren? She didn't ask. I thought your parents don't speak to you. I had questions I couldn't ask anyone else. A mother of a son with talent like yours should be proud. She's ashamed that I could use the talent that God gave me against God. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. 
Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going? Guys, let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. Can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. running? <laughs> Somehow I can't see that. Oh. <laughs> I thought for certain he would trip and fall and I would be arrested. No, your luck, Rivka. Probably would happen, huh? Oh. <laughs> I thought for certain Lil was gone forever that day. It's Mary now. Always was. Does anyone want any grapes? Apparently, you eat a lot. <laughs> Very absurd. Thank you. Simon? You know, Matthew, when you're not behind iron bars, you're quite handsome. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? Hmm. May I help you? We were just on a walk and we heard voices, and I thought it sounded like... But surely not. And yet it is you. Would you like to come in? We would never. Never be caught dead in a... In a what? In a tax collector's house? Not only that, but we say... Do you know what she... And he... They are... You seem to be having troubles finding your words, man. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I must say, I am shocked 
Chi is from the Red Quarter. Much of what is done there cannot even be spoken by my tongue or across my lips. It is so unholy. The mere mention of it would defile me. Sounds like a personal problem. But him and the others he works with, they betray our people for money, and they're not even sorry. If you're so offended, then leave. Let them speak, Andrew. They've never offered guild sacrifices in the temple. What? The priest keeps records. We check them. Tax collectors are not welcome at the temple. We would like them better if they made the proper sacrifices. This is not about me. This is about what God wants. You are forgetting the scroll of Hosea. Hmm? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. There are righteous men on the lookout for you. And they are weighing every word you say. Is that a threat? Please let them know this, Yusuf. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Is everything under control here? Uh, yes. We were just going on our way, Centurion. As Premier Ordener to you. Premier Ordener. You all keep eating. I, I will talk to this man. Guys. You're making a mistake. You can walk away from this. I made my choice. Look at that room. Other than Rom and Jehaz, whom I know to be law-abiding tax collectors, everyone else in there, the dregs of Capernaum. Gaius, the bottom of the barrel. Germanic, correct? Isn't that what you told Quintus? Do not change the subject. Your people surrendered. I'm surrendering too. Jesus constantly challenged the establishment. And this was no exception. His actions here are what we would call politically incorrect. It really was. And I want to look today at five politically incorrect actions of Jesus and actions we should take. Five politically incorrect actions of Jesus and actions we should take. First of all, number one is Jesus recruited the quote-unquote wrong people. Jesus recruited the, the wrong people. Levi, also called Matthew, was a tax collector. And you might ask, well, so what's wrong with the tax collector? I, I have nothing against tax collectors. In our country today, outside of some nefarious IRS persons who targeted certain people, tax collection is governed by laws. And if you follow the laws, you have nothing to fear. However, Matthew worked as a tax collector for the Roman government. Tax collectors were Jewish citizens under contract to the Roman government. They collected taxes from their fellow Jews and passed them on to the Romans, minus, of course, a commission. And tax collectors had a reputation for enriching themselves with fat commissions at the expense of their fellow countrymen. They did not act politically correct, and they were despised by the Jews as corrupt and evil men. No one 
Literally, no one would associate with a tax collector. To do so was politically incorrect, unacceptable. So what does Jesus do? He recruits one of them for his leadership team. Politically incorrect. Why did Jesus do that? Matthew left everything to follow Jesus, which carried high risks. Fishermen could always return to fishing, but a tax collector, Matthew as a tax collector, he was done. He was done for good. The question is, why did Jesus recruit a corrupt scumbag like Matthew? Jesus saw what Matthew was, but he also saw what Matthew could become. Jesus saw something called potential. Jesus does that. He looks at us with all our faults, our problems, our, our sins, the wrong things we've done, and he sees potential. See, we did not choose God. God chose us. Why? Because he's politically incorrect. He doesn't wait for perfection. He doesn't wait for us to have our lives completely in order. He doesn't demand that we clean up our lives ahead of time. He doesn't demand that we earn his trust or even change our lives first. Jesus looks at all of that, sees what we with God's in our lives can become. And then he says to you and me, follow me, follow me. When the basketball great, Michael Jordan, you've all heard of Michael Jordan, when Michael Jordan was a sophomore in high school, he was cut from the basketball team. He wasn't good enough. The next year, his junior, he tried out again. And the coach could have said to him, I cut you last year, you were not be good enough. So, But he saw potential in Michael Jordan. And out of that decision came the greatest basketball player this world has ever known. God looks at you and me, and he says, you've been cut before. You didn't measure up, but I see potential. I see greatness, and he says, follow me. Join my team. It's politically incorrect. That's what Jesus does. So Jesus recruited the wrong people. Number two, Jesus accepted and befriended the quote-unquote wrong people. He accepted and befriended the wrong people. Matthew was so excited about his decision to follow Jesus that he threw a party for his tax collector friends and others. Now, the Pharisees and religious people were separatists. They felt it was their duty to stay away from people like Matthew because it was politically incorrect. To sit down and eat with someone was to demonstrate acceptance and friendship. And the religious people were incensed. This was not acceptable. It was not politically correct. They were separatists. Jesus was inclusive. There are a lot of people today who feel they're unworthy to God. And maybe you're here today and feel like Matthew and others did. Outsiders, sinners, despised, or never, never quite fit in. That is exactly who Jesus came to befriend and accept. And no matter what your past, no matter what your background, your mistakes, no matter what your sins, 
Jesus came for you. Jesus demonstrated God's passion for people who felt left out, who, who were forgotten, they felt unworthy. Do we as followers of Jesus do the same? Who are the unworthy or the untouchables in our minds today? Who are the individuals that religious people try to separate from? People that we consider unworthy. Back in 2006, Judy and I took a mission team to Slovakia. It was a group of 20-somethings and college students. And it was a music group and a hip-hop dance team. We performed in the public square outdoors in a restaurant, in two pubs or bars. Our music was, believe it or not, it was praise and worship. It was Martha Manuzzi, Israel Houghton, and some other, other composers. It was hot music with Christian lyrics that dancers could hip-hop to. Okay, Some of you are going, what? Is that music? Yeah, they could do hip-hop too. And I will never forget one concert at an outdoor pub. One tall, burly Slovak. He's probably 6'5 and 250. He was a big guy. He was so engaged in the concert performance that he came up from the table he was sitting at and he danced with the hip-hop team. It, it was a classic moment. Not a graceful moment. It was a classic moment. This, this man was obviously well-known, and he seemed to be the life of the party in this particular pub. But he didn't have a good reputation. As with all of our concerts, we were unable to evaluate the spiritual impact immediately. However, at the end of our 10-day tour of concerts in that city, we held one final concert in an auditorium where the hip-hop team, who had by this time had integrated 30 high school students from all over the region, um, including the Czech Republic, they had come and become part of this hip-hop team and were dancing in the finale that we were sponsoring. This big, burly, giant Slovak man, the life of every party, not only came himself, but he brought his entire family. He must have had a lot of relatives. He brought, it looked like he brought like 20 people this whole group of people. And it was at the end of this concert that our sponsoring missionary shared the good news of Jesus Christ with an invitation to follow Jesus. I don't know what went through that man's head or what happened in his heart that night, but the one thing I know, we loved him and we loved his family. We accepted him exactly where they were in a local bar and earned the right to tell him about Jesus. Was that politically incorrect? We accepted the wrong people, quote, in the wrong place. How else are people to find out about Jesus? We hesitate to associate with some people. We realize, however, that we're all in the same boat. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, Are we any better? Not at all. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul, when he wrote this passage, was writing to people who are trying to impress God 
with their heritage, their pedigree, and to gain acceptance by what they've done. The problem is God's standard is absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. And some people may reach 95% perfection. Some maybe only 25%, some 83%, some 37%. We feel really good the higher we get and look at scorn on those who aren't as good as we are. But God said we all fall short. Falling short is falling short. And we all fall short. It's like trying to jump the chasm over a waterfall. It makes no difference if you make it 95% over or 37% over. You still go in the river. We all fall short no matter how far we go. And the, the trouble with the religious people in our story today is they didn't see that. Since they didn't see their need, Jesus came to those who saw their need. All had needs of God, but Jesus came to those who knew they fell short. All are floating down the river, drowning. doesn't matter that I made it further across than you. We're all drowning. We all need saving. Jesus came to offer that saving to everyone. But only those who know they're drowning accept the offer to help. Number three, Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was to the quote-unquote wrong people, wrong people. In verse 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You would think that the Son of God would come to the religious, the righteous people. He didn't. He came to the sick, to the sinners. Who is, who is the church for? Who is the church for? It's for the unchurched. The sick, those whose lives have been devastated by this disease that we call sin. How many times have you seen a man, and it's almost always a man, very sick but refusing to go to the doctor or hospital? Okay, elbow your husband, that's fine. Sick and doesn't know, don't want to admit it. And I know, I, I don't like hospitals either. I don't like doctors. They make me sick. And here's a man, sick, dying, needs to go to the hospital, won't go because he doesn't think he needs to. Well, until we see our need, our sickness, Jesus cannot do anything for us. Jesus came to the sick to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And the great irony here, as we see all throughout this, this gospel text, that the religious leaders of the day had deep-seated sin. It was called the sin of pride. The sin of pride. They just didn't see it. Jesus came to call the sinners to repentance. Repentance means to give it up, to turn around. 180-degree change. Change of direction. Does Jesus call us as sinners to give it up because he doesn't want us to have any more fun? Some people think God is up there somewhere and just saying, looking down at humans and says, find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. That's not what God's doing. Repent, go to church, quit smiling, laughing, and having fun. Get serious. No. 
Jesus calls us to repent because he knows the devastating effect of sin in our lives. Selfishness, anger, substance abuse, adultery, which wrecks marriages and families, pornography, gossip, which can destroy reputations and lives. Jesus calls us to repentance, to give up our sin, not to destroy our fun, but to bring us to fun. It's called the abundant life. Sin destroys our lives. Repentance is a first step to something called joy. So Jesus' mission, our mission, is to call people to repentance and let them know what the alternatives are. Jesus' mission was to reach the quote-unquote wrong people. That is our mission too. Jesus was politically incorrect. We should be too. Number four, Jesus brought celebration instead of obligation. Jesus brought celebration instead of obligation. Verse 33. Interesting. These verses were not in there, but I want to look at those. It says, They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while it is, he is with them? But a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Does Jesus say to them, does he say to us, don't fast and pray? No. He says there will come a time for fasting and praying. In fact, he predicts his own death when he says a time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them by force. He knows that. But he said now it's time to celebrate. The writer of Ecclesiastes 4 says there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And this is a shot, this passage, part of the passage, is a shot at religious people who elevated religious obligations and religious duties. It's the I have to attitude. The I have to. You tell your kid, go clean your room. First reaction is going to be, do I have to? If they said, do I get to? We would say, what happened? The high, I have to is obligation. The I get to is freedom. Many of you remember the story of Tom Sawyer. We read it in school years ago. Tom Sawyer was given the job of painting a fence. Tom did not want to paint the fence. So he started painting the fence, and all his, his friends came around. And they said, what are you doing? He said, I'm... I'm painting the fence. They said, he said, it's not every day you get to paint a fence. Guess what happened? All his friends wanted to get to paint. So he let them paint the fence because they got to. It's a different attitude. We approach Christianity in our faith with I have to instead of I get to. I get to. Obligation or celebration. See, right here, Jesus is with him. It's a wedding. It's not a funeral yet. Someday Jesus was going to die, and then will come the time for fasting, praying, and mourning. But now, it's a celebration for them. Jesus is alive. He's present. I know it may be politically incorrect. We're supposed to be somber in church. A great Catholic saint, de Chardin, said this, Joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Joy. 
is a sure sign of the presence of God. Jesus came to bring news, yet, and yes, there's pain, there's suffering, but the hallmark of our faith is joy. Those of you that have read C.S. Lewis, if you've read Surprised by Joy, he wrote about his conversion. He was a total skeptic about this Christianity thing. C.S. Lewis describes himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. He was dragged into the kingdom by his heels, kicking and screaming. He likens it to bracing yourself to dive into a cold mountain stream and finding it delightful. That's his description. The religious people were convinced that Jesus had the wrong attitude. He suggested that while discipleship may cost you your life, the presence of God is a cause for celebration. Celebration. And the finally, the final politically correct action of Jesus in this particular passage, Jesus brought change. Jesus brought change. Verse 36, he says, he told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment. And the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says the old is better. What is Jesus talking about here? He, he gives two illustrations of change. He's talking about change. First one is a garment. It says, foolish to mutilate a new garment by tearing a piece from it to repair the old garment. It won't match. And Mark says, the new will shrink and pull the old garment to pieces. Jesus shows how foolish it is to try to adapt the new way of life that he brought to the old religion of the Pharisees and teachers. It doesn't fit. It will rip and destroy. The old is obsolete. Old ideas and old traditions. Jesus brings a brand new garment. Have you ever tried to hang on to something in your past that became more important than your future? Than your present? A past incident, maybe a past hurt, a past memory? Or you valued a past memory of God more than your present experience with him. We all have great memories of God in our past. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But our faith is dynamic. It's not static. Our faith must be in the now. Our present relationship with God. Not just fond memories of him in the past. For the Pharisees, their faith was static. Jesus says it's dynamic, it's ever-changing, it's growing. Some people never get to past a certain point in their spiritual journey. They never move forward, they never change, they never progress, never grow. I'm spiritual enough, don't disturb my peace, leave me alone, I like my comfort zone. And we live our comfort foods of church, get-togethers, small groups, fellowship times, a predictable life. And Jesus says, enough already, it's time to change. Time to change. Jesus challenged their experience of God and may challenge ours. May challenge ours. Replacing religious rituals with present living dynamic interaction with the living God. It's not politically correct 
but it is correct. I don't encourage many movies, but there's one I, you have to see. You have to see it. We saw it at the, its premiere on Friday called Jesus Revolution. It's a story of Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel. The revival that started in the 70s. In 1969, I was at Arrowhead Springs, heard Josh McDowell speak. It was the beginning of this Jesus revolution that began amongst the hippies. They were the rejects. They went barefoot into church. They wore clothes that were crazy. They did this awful music. It was called rock. They did all these things. And Chuck Smith had a traditional church. And they came in because they were drawn by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God began to send revival. And they came in to his church. And, and you can see the discomfort of the traditional Christians. They're not dressing right. They don't act right. They don't know what to do. You hear Chuck Smith telling the story of it. And you can see it in this movie. They would baptize literally hundreds of people at a time in the ocean. The Pacific Ocean at one of the beaches. We observed that revival. Some of you remember that revival in the early 70s. We're starting to see the beginnings of that at Asbury College and Lee University and and colleges here in, in Minneapolis. God is starting to do something new. Something new. It's it's upsetting the tradition and the schedules and what they normally do. And I pray that God will do that here. Not just in our church, but in Eau Claire. The second illustration Jesus gives is the wineskin illustration. We don't see wine in wineskins today. What did Jesus mean? In New Testament times, they put new wine or grape juice into leather bottles. They were elastic and stretchy, and as the juice fermented, the bottle would stretch with it. If you put new wine in old wineskins, the fermenting process would burst the old stiff wineskins. Now, this illustration has nothing to do with chronological age. The older we get, the more we all look and feel like old wineskins. It's not that at all, just so you know. But our experience with God may be that old wineskin. We cannot or contain, contain or accommodate new things God wants to teach us or accomplish in us in an old wineskin. God is an innovator. He is a God of the new. We cannot box him in. The new wine is Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. And he's moving and stretching us just like the fermentation process. And is the moving, dynamic tumult inside each and every one of us. When God's spirit moves inside of us, we move from comfortable, in control, predictable, usual, to uncomfortable, out of control, unpredictable, and unusual. God makes all things new. And God calls us, each and every one of us, to present God with a new, fresh wineskin of flexibility every new day in every new situation. We cannot keep our old wineskin. We cannot depend on previous experience. God does new things. And our prayer should be, God, make me a new wineskin today and every day. God takes our lives out of the comfort zone, gets us out of the rut, and gets us growing. It's a process. 
this new creation that God wants to do and is doing in us begins, but it never ends, never ends. God is always new. When it comes to our church, it does not mean we forsake any timeless truths. But God the Holy Spirit takes timeless truths and he changes us today. In verse 39, we read that the Pharisees wanted to stay with the old law. Jesus brought the grace of God. It was unacceptable to them. It was politically incorrect. Where are you today? Where's your family? Where's our church? Are you ready for change? Are you ready to be and live politically incorrect? Let's pray. Father, our desire is to be used of you and sometimes to be used of you there needs to be change. Change in our lives. Change in our agendas. Change in our priorities. And Father, I just pray that as we move forward, we would make room for the new wine. Make room for the new move. Make, make room for the revival that you're sending. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that as we make room for you, that you would transform our hearts and lives today. We're going to stand in a minute. I want us to, I just want to open the front of the church to take some time to pray and make room. If your heart cry is, God, I want to be politically incorrect, I want to I want to make room for you. If that's your your desire, you can you can stay where you're at. You can come up; it doesn't matter. But I want us all to stand, and as we sing, feel free to come down as we sing. Make room. Let's stand. Shall we?